And welcome to Deviant Women, the podcast where we talk about deviant women from history, mythology, literature, and contemporaneity. I'm Lauren. And I'm Alicia. And thanks for joining us again. Today is the second part of our, what are we calling this? I don't know. Our double episode about reproductive rights. Yay. That's what what it is. Fun topic. To do twice in a row. I can't tell if that was like sarcasm or if you meant that fun in inverted commas. It's like, it's kind of difficult though isn't it it is it is but i actually think that that's kind of part of the reason for having this conversation as well is trying to make it less difficult right? yeah all right so just before we delve into that yeah we should probably just frame today's episode okay. for our listeners open the door so last episode if you haven't listened to it yet kind of leads into this one last time around we were talking about margaret sanger who was an early american birth control activist and we kind of left off with her in the middle of last century Mm. and we're picking up again sort of at the same period in time with another birth control activist. This time around we're going to look at a woman called Pat McGuinness and so we'll frame today's discussion around looking at her biography which we'll get into in a minute. I think that I wanted to start out with this episode. Last episode we did precursor with obviously with a little bit of a warning just to let you know what um, we're talking talking about and that still applies to today but at the same time as well I think this is a conversation that we need to make far less stigmatized Mm. and also far less sensitive in a lot of ways like we need to be able to approach these things in a way where we don't tippy-toe around them where we make it a much more open casual conversation Mm -hmm. that women feel that they can have with anyone at any time right yeah and I think that that's I think that's probably a, a much more useful way of framing a conversation than already going into it with that sort of sense of like now we're going to be careful about yeah. this topic. I think it's the thing that's difficult that I, I have is when it comes to the politicising of it, mm. you know, it's it's the way that it's used as a tool yeah. to repress women and as a way of keeping women locked into these particular roles, keeping them, you know, tied to the reproductive functions of their bodies in ways that they don't have control over Mm. that's the thing that I find really difficult like I completely agree though we totally need to overcome the stigma of what is going to be part of our primary conversation today which is abortion that's right and Pat McGuinness who we're looking at was the kind of woman who was not afraid to go out on the street and walk up to a complete stranger and say hey uh, how do you feel about abortion yeah like she wanted to have that conversation. She wanted that conversation to be out loud and proud. She wanted people to be talking about it. And that's important because we know how quickly women who are outspoken about abortion get shut down. Yeah, that's right. So it's also really a timely episode because Pat McGuinness is, she's still alive. She's still around. She turned 91 this week. Wow. Happy birthday, Pat. Happy birthday, Pat. So uh, she, from what I can find from some of the different sort of social media online that sort of represents or speaks for Pat is that she's been in and out of hospital recently, but she's doing all right. And so, hey, she's in the 90s 
doing pretty good. That's good. So uh, we're going to look at her life today and at the strides that her work Mm. and many other women around her as well, many of her contemporaries, the strides that they made towards uh, making abortion legal in America. So again, looking at this American context. But I do want to dip in where it's appropriate to offer some like parallels. So obviously we are Australian. Many of our listeners are Australian. And um, I also want to offer those points of comparison to Australia along the journey too. Yeah, definitely. And another thing as well is that last week we sort of left off at the development of the pill. And I think before we launch into the next part of our conversation, it's worth unpicking some of that history, which Mm. we hinted at being a bit of a dark history. Yeah. And Sanger, uh, she had a contribution to getting the funds to, to help to develop the pill. So this was in the 1950s. We're sort of situating ourselves here. And it was developed by a man named Gregory Pincus. Mm. Who Sanger met and asked him specifically to help her develop the pill. Correct. That's right. So the first human trial was conducted in the US. It was conducted in Massachusetts on a group of about 50 women. But Uh, in order for the Food and Drug Administration to actually allow Mm. the sale of it, it needed a bigger testing sample. Large-scale clinical trials. And guess where the laws allow them to do those large-scale clinical trials? Well, this is, of course, part of the dark history of the pill. Not enough American women were willing to volunteer for the Mm. trials either, so they shipped the trial off to Puerto Rico. Yeah. Now, you can see where this is going, yes, where this story we can. is going. <laughs> yeah. So most of the women didn't speak English, didn't maybe fully understand what they were getting themselves into. In order to participate, they also had to agree that if they did get pregnant, that they would keep the child. Mm. So there were a lot of problems with this yeah. from the outset. And I wonder how this would go in an ethics application today. I don't think you would pass that. No (laughs) I don't think it would pass ethics. You would not get this past ethics now. No, not at all. But, of course, you know, this was shipped off to Puerto Rico for a reason, right? And they often ignored the side effects that came about as a result of this trial as well, didn't they? They did. And there were some fairly serious side effects. I mean, there's sort of – well, because the dosage that they were using was much higher Mm. than the dosage that – we get now which imagine the side effects if you've been on the pill and you've experienced some of those side effects which i certainly have Mm. like fucking hell imagine it it was like 10 times the amount of estrogen so imagine that 10 times it's pretty ridiculous and some of those side effects are things like nausea and bloating but then some of those other side effects are things like depression and Mm -hmm. even an increased risk of blood clots as well So three women did die during the trial. What? Look at your face. You didn't, ah, you did not. I did not know know that. that. So three women died, but this is the thing, right, is there was never an autopsy done to be able to establish whether or not their deaths were simply a coincidence Mm -hmm. or whether or not they were related to being part of the trial. So we conveniently never will know. So we'll never know. There's actually no way of knowing. Mm. We can't 100% confirm whether or not those deaths were related to the trial. we can't say the correlation equals causation. No, but And there may have been many other factors involved, yeah. so we don't know. But the net result of this trial was that in 1957, the first contraceptive pill was 
in fact put on the shelves mm. for consumer use. First of all, as a medication to sort of to treat severe menstrual side effects. Which, by the way, there was a huge influx of women who were suddenly going to their doctors reporting menstrual disorders. Yeah, which you can imagine. Yes. Yes. <laughs> but eventually it was approved as an actual oral contraceptive in 1960. So I think that's a really... It's such a key thing to think about because we did also discuss last week, you know, that concept of birth control, who is it available to, Mm. who has the access to it, who has the money to afford it, like where is this position of privilege that actually allows you to use that to have access to any Mm. kind of contraceptive, knowing that globally there are so many women who don't, which of course leads us into that discussion about, well, If you can't guarantee that everyone is going to be able to have some kind of contraceptive, then we need to have abortion. Yeah. yeah. It's something that's existed since forever, since we walked the planet. Yeah. And it's going to exist because there's always going to be a need for it. Yeah. So what do we need to do? Hey, it seems pretty obvious. We need to regulate it, make it safe, make it accessible. And ensure that women aren't dying of sepsis in back alleys. Precisely. Yes. Before we bring in Pat, though, I have another couple of pill facts that I just want to chuck in. Oh, please. Yeah, chuck in the pill facts. Which was that firstly, within the first two years of its release, 1.2 million American women were on the pill. And by 1965, just five years later, it was 6.5 million Meanwhile, in Australia in 1961, the pill Anavla became available on the 1st of February and it was initially only available to married women and it had a 27.5% luxury tax. Oh, you're fucking kidding. Luxury tax. So again, (gasps) speaking of accessibility. Yeah. So in Australia, we have something called the Pharmaceutical Benefits Scheme, which means that most of our pharmaceutical drugs are heavily reduced in cost. However... Our Prime Minister, Gough Whitlam, God bless that man, he abolished this tax within the first 10 days in office. Oh, Gough Whitlam. And he placed it on the pharmaceutical benefits scheme, reducing its cost to $1 a month. Holy crap. So it became suddenly so much more accessible when Whitlam came into power. Yeah. As did many other things. Yes. So (laughs) He did a lot of good good things. Yeah. Yeah. And actually in our, you know, in our context, we've just had an election here recently as well. So, yeah, which did not go so well <laughs> for us. And we've been thinking fondly of our <laughs> of other times. Figures like Gough Whitlam and his. <sighs> anyway. The world. So this is what leads us then into. So this Pat, is what leads right? us. Yeah. So this is what leads us to thinking about figures like Pat, who were at the forefront of um, abortion rights activism in American history. And she is sort of considered pretty much one of the first abortion rights activists in American history. Mm. She's kind of sometimes referred to as the Che Guevara of abortion rights. And she's a really interesting figure. Was she as militant as Che Guevara as... Are there people walking around with her face on a T-shirt? No, but there should be. (laughs) I'm pretty sure we could make that happen. I feel we could make that happen. But we'll go back to where it all began for her as well. And I think we're going to see some interesting parallels to old Sanger. Uh Uh-huh. Except is she as problematic as Sanger? I don't feel she is, no. Yeah, so she doesn't have some murky eugenicist territory that does make her... (laughs) No, not that I've uncovered in my research. Because that is the thing that does leave a bad taste in our mouths when we're talking about Margaret Sanger, isn't it? It's the fact that she did. Yeah, she had definitely a dark history of her own. She's by no means perfect. No one that we look at is ever really perfect, are we? We're we're all complicated human beings. Yeah, but we're not in the business of hagiography anyway, which is like 
a fabulous word and I feel like <laughs> if I had a child I'd call them hagiography. No, maybe I'd keep it for like a fish or a hag- hamster. You could call them hagia. Hagia. Oh, that's not bad actually. It's like they're a hag yeah. but they're also a saint. They're a sainty hag. <laughs> anyway. Pat. Pat. Let's talk about Pat. Pat. So she was born in Ithaca, New York. Which, again, I love the fact that there's an Ithaca, New mm. York. Like there's a Paris, Texas. Mm-hmm. Like I just think these things, which is a great film, but I'm on a, <laughs> I'm on a tangent. And she was born in 1928, right? So Dust Bowl America. Oh, yeah. Which is a very fascinating period of American history. You're obsessed um, with it. I am. It's true. <laughs> I really do love Dust Bowl America. All I can think of is The Wizard of Oz when I think of Dust Bowl America. And that's good too. Yeah. That's part of the glory. Of, of the, course, before she goes to Oz. I say the the glory, the glory of but Dust it wasn't. Bowl it was not a glorious time. No. It was the opposite of a glorious time. <laughs> but and this is what she's born into. This is what she's born into. And guess what religion her family was, Lauren? Just guess. Catholic. Roman Catholic. Of course they were. Ding ding ding. They're the favorite. They love abortion. Full points to you. No, <laughs> they really don't. No, they don't. Do they? I forgot. Oh, They're the opposite of that. Although there are. Actually, some quite a few religious groups these days who are pro-choice mm. as well. Not the Catholics, though. No, there are actually still religious groups who are pro-choice and who support safe and legal access to abortion. There's actually the Catholics for Choice. Wow. And there's also another organisation called the Re- Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice, which is an interfaith organisation which is pro-choice. Mm-hmm. We, okay. will, we will. I'll cut them some slack. <laughs> I live with a former Catholic who is very anti-Catholic <laughs> and I used to think that they were fine but... He's chipping away at my... (laughs) Well, hey, look, no one's perfect. Again, we've established that, (laughs) I think. But in this particular period of history that we're looking at, obviously the Roman Catholic Church is a huge factor in Mm. the size of families and in women's health Mm -hmm. as a result of that. So she grew up with six siblings in Oklahoma and her father barely scraped enough together to keep them afloat. He was a vet. So a vet. A vet. Like a, as in. Like a veterinarian. A veterinarian, yes. not a former military Not a veteran. Yes, yes, that's Just right. Just checking. Yeah. I mean, it's worth There's, checking. They're different things. They are different things. But, of course, as we saw in last week's episode, good Catholic dogma meant that contraception was off the cards, of right? Course. So this is why she's one of six siblings. Um, and only six is actually quite. It's not huge Mm. but pat sort of remembered her mother as often being unwell and in pain from what she called female trouble Uh which of course is obviously from having six kids yeah imagine it's part and parcel well i wonder as well though if she's largely because six children that's not a lifetime spent in pregnancy but i wonder if she had other female maladies you know maybe she had endo oh fucking endo yeah you know if she's complaining of female troubles all the time that's right who knows there are so many things that it could be and this is why places that deal with the wide array of women's reproductive health is so important yeah precisely and as a sufferer of endo myself that is important. <laughs> so anyway, hello, all the endometriosis sufferers in the world. So moving on from that, her father was actually apparently also quite violent mm. and Pat was pretty keen to get away from a very young age. So she was actually quite happy when she got sent away to convent boarding school. Aha. Uh-huh. I went to a convent what? boarding school? No, you did not. It used to be. It just changed the name. It used to be called Loretto Convent and it changed its name to Loretto College. Do you know what, Lauren? There were still nuns there when I was there. You would have made like a great Maria. Like there's everything <laughs> about you says reformed nun. Like 
I don't, what? I don't, I don't know if you take that as a, okay. a comp. Like, Interesting. But like I just, Maria Von Trapp? Yeah. Like okay. I just feel like All right. you would have been in a past life, I feel like you were a nun in a convent that just went, fuck, fuck this, this shit, and then just went off the rails. And married a handsome Austrian man. Or just ran away with another nun. Like I feel yeah. like you were maybe like that Julie Daubeny type yeah. nun figure. Yeah, no, I can see that. Yeah? I can see I can that for good. myself. I feel like you channel Especially that. running down laneways. And singing, holding a guitar case. Yeah, followed by a, a slew of children. <laughs> but look, none of that happened to Pat, right? As far as I'm aware. So she didn't make a miraculous escape from she, a, No, she didn't. From the I don't know if she sung or danced at any point. But she did eventually finish her studies mm. and she decided that rather than going to college, she was going to go straight out to find work. So she worked in a lab for a while before funding a trip to the Netherlands to meet a man that she'd had a long time pen pal friendship with, which oh. is like, you know, early early Tinder, early Tinder, I suppose. But that didn't work out. And this is interesting because she sort of talks about this not working out because it was this was her potential marriage partner yeah right? this, this is, is the, the this is the fork in her road where she either goes down that route yeah and she gets married and she mm-hmm. has the babies and she lives that life or yeah. she, does she goes else. down the other path so this kind of crystallized to her that that wasn't what she wanted mm. she didn't want to go down that family and children I, path oh, it's, it's also ringing bells for me i wonder why because of your past life yeah. as a nun no the past life of my own life where i also came to this same fork in the road and decided to your leave. Pat, your Maria, your all of to them. Leave my fiance. All of them not together. Do that. Yeah. Anyway. So there you go. So there's definitely parallels. <laughs> but she decided she didn't want that. And on her return to America, what she did decide was that a friend of hers had mentioned how the women's army corps uniforms were quite cute. <laughs> and she thought, yeah, I wouldn't mind trying that on. Interesting reason to get involved in the army corps. It is. But I actually feel you would like do, you would do that. That's something I would do. But I don't know. I feel like I would probably choose like the Air Force because I think I like their hats best. Yeah, they have good hats. Yeah. So based on hats, I joined the Air Force. Based on mm-hmm. hats, she didn't. Um, <laughs> and she was stationed at Fort Bragg in North Carolina where she trained as a surgical technician. Now here she struck up a friendship with a soldier but this soldier happened to be African-American. So she was violating Southern laws about fraternising. Oh, what? Yeah. Shit. Because this is still, well, what is this? This is still the 40s, right? Mm. So she was punished for this fraternising, for this friendship. Wow, it's a friendship. I didn't even realise it extended to friendship. Well, it says fraternising, so mm. I'm not sure how close how, they got. Yeah, okay. But she reports that basically she was caught walking with him one day, like just out having a walk with him, having a chat. What the fuck? And then got holed up to the office oh and my God. was accused of setting a bad example for all the other women. And she, as a punishment, was sent off to Panama. What? Like that's a pretty extreme... Move. Wow. Like for walking in public for, with a black man. Exactly. Fuck. So me. this is the period of history. Come on. This is the period of history that we're looking at. Yeah. Let's just take a moment and remember <laughs> that that's and fucked. To appreciate just how extreme that yeah. actually is. And it's not no. that far in our history. No. So I'm often shocked to think about how close we are to these points in history. Mm. But we won't. Dwell. dwell. I say that a lot, don't I? I try not to dwell a lot. <laughs> I don't like to dwell. 
just like to well, drop. You can't. I just like to drop troublesome, problematic things and then move on. How can you function as a person in the world? If well, you- this is it, and I think that this is part of it, right? You do need to pack some things away in order mm. to function on a daily basis, right? Mm. And women like Pap, so many women who are involved in these kinds of movements, I have so much deep respect and admiration for because. I couldn't do this every day you of my life. You confront it all the time. All the time. Because you're forced to. When you do this work, it's in your life constantly. All the time. Obviously, this work is part of what we do on this podcast. And sometimes this podcast is even mm. hard enough, mm-hmm. you know. Sometimes recording this podcast every fortnight is a difficult enough walk through these kinds of mm. issues. So I think we have to stop and really take a moment to absolutely give the respect to the people who do this day in, yep. day out and devote yep. their lives to it because those are the people who have the strength and the tenacity whereas I'm the person who's like, all right, now I'm going to have a cry in my bedroom mm. and I'm not going to think about this. For, do you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, I'm like going to take some sleeping tablets and go to bed and <laughs> try not to think about this. And try not to think about it. Yeah. Whereas this is what she decides she's going to dedicate her life to working on yeah. and there's good reasons for it. So she spent the next two years here in Panama where she was assigned to the paediatrics and obstetrics ward. So much like our old mate Sanger, here she saw countless botched abortions as well as infant deaths, as well as women forced to carry pregnancies they didn't want to term. So this was a very seminal experience for her. Mm. So I was saying before about we should have these conversations, but a trigger warning on this particular story because much like Margaret Sanger spoke about Sadie Sachs, remember the woman Mm -hmm. um, who sort of was that moment in her life that made her realise what work she wanted to do. Pat also describes a moment that really was a trigger for her when she was working in this hospital and she describes this moment of a woman who was dragged in. She was pregnant to a man who wasn't her husband. Mm -hmm. She was dragged in in a straitjacket. She was put into a bed that had a cage over it. What? She was caged into her bed because they were trying to make sure that she wouldn't self-abort the <gasps> baby. And Pat oh. described how this woman would sit there in this bed screaming in Spanish, <gasps> shaking at the bars, like the bars that ha- were over caging her into this bed and that the Americans would walk in and out and tell her to shut up. <gasps> what the fuck? So there was nothing she could do to help her. And this was that moment, this Mm. is that moment where she knew she was like, this can't be the way the world Mm. is. And she never knew what happened to this woman, what became of this woman or this baby, but this was that inspiration Mm. that just made her feel like this can't be the way the world works. Yeah. It's fucking terrible, isn't it? Take a moment. (laughs) Full on, hey. Like literally she was caged for her pregnancy. Yeah. On a bed. Yeah. Yeah, That's really fucked up. It's so fucked up. She was caged up like an animal, which we shouldn't cage anyway, but caged up to forced to take this. For the rest of the duration of her pregnancy. Forced to take this child to term that she didn't want. Mm. So the trigger warning on that one was (laughs) real. (laughs) Sorry. No, it's, it's important to know these things, to know what we're putting at risk. When we try to move backwards. Yeah. That this is what it was before. And this is what it could be like again. And there are genuine concentrated efforts to move backwards. To go back to that. 
And there are places in the world where what? I'm sure this is where still this is the happening. case. This is still the case. So this, of course, feeds mm. into that desperate desire to change things. And after her time in Panama where she saw this kind of treatment, which again comes back again to what we're talking about, that similar thing in Puerto Rico, like just that dehumanising, mm-hmm. that yeah. complete dehumanising. Because as soon as you have a fetus inside you, you are no longer human, you are just a vessel for yeah. that. And also the level of racism that's inherent yeah. in that yeah. story it's the as double, well. It's the double whammy of dehumanisation. Precisely. Just how incredibly, I don't even know, like you can't, there's no words for it. Like mm. formative isn't enough. Seminar, like it yeah. just, that would have to change you. Yeah. How could it not yeah. change you? How could you see that Go back and, to your normal and, life. and not be affected by yeah. that, right? Well, and obviously there was a lot of people in the hospital who, who weren't. Who weren't. You know, who like, were completely desensitised yeah. to it. But this, again, this comes back to that thing that we were talking about before where I just can't fathom dealing with that on a daily basis, mm. like making, you know, committing mm. yourself to this particular cause. So when she returned from her time in Panama, she decided to go to college and she returned to go to San Jose State in California. Now, here, like many progressive middle-class women, she got herself a diaphragm, right? Of course. Of course, yep. She used spermicidal foam. Good, responsible you know, woman. She's a respons- Taking care of business. She's a responsible woman. She's following the precautions. But guess fucking what? Oh, no. Don't tell me. She got pregnant. Yeah. Now this, of course, brings up that whole thing, right? You can follow the precautions to a letter. You can do everything that needs to be done. But that doesn't mean that this is... not foolproof. It's not foolproof, right? So she knew, as she'd known for a little while, that children were not for her, as I said before, and she headed over the border to Mexico where abortions were illegal but they were also fairly easy to obtain. Yeah. And this was the most common way of getting an abortion at the time. So she was, of course, horrified to think that she had to leave her own country to get medical mm. assistance. And why should it not be readily available? So when she fell pregnant again a year later, oh dear, Lauren, uh. she decided this time she was going to take matters into her own hands oh rather than go over the border again. So she performed her own abortion using tubing and a catheter and she gave herself an infection that nearly killed her. Well, that's not surprising. That's not surprising, right? And the lengths that you're pushed to to do that, right? Yeah. She succeeded in terminating the pregnancy but she checked herself into a hospital and was put in a ward that was entirely for women who had had botched abortions. A whole whole ward. ward. A whole ward. (gasps) Shit. Mm -hmm. And the police would come to this ward and interrogate women and insist that, you know, when they were released from hospital that they come down to the station, that they speak to them, that they give them all the details, Mm. that they tell them everything they knew about if they got their abortion, who was it, where from. But the thing is as well is that if there's a sort of a loophole in the law that if you had performed that on yourself, well, you can't be charged with a felony against yourself, right? Can't you? So they couldn't actually... Uh-huh. arrest her she she asked her attorney if she actually had to turn up if she had to answer any of their questions and she was told no no she didn't hmm. so she thought fuck that i won't okay so they rang her up and they were like why didn't you come in and she's like well i didn't have to by yeah. law i don't have to but it was also that sense of intimidation right yeah. these women are at their lowest these women are vulnerable yeah. if we tell them they have to do this they, they will then they will right yeah. so it's coercion it's manipulation totally right so 
you're not going to believe what happens next. She got pregnant again. Things come in threes. Oh, God. She got pregnant again. Oh, she must have been so fucking over it by that Could point. you imagine how furious you mm-hmm. would be? You'd be like, come on. Yeah. So by now it's 1959 and she's in her early 30s and nothing had changed to allow her to get an abortion legally. So she decided she was going to do DIY she again. Did it again. This time, though, she decided she was going to take a different method. Okay. So this time she succeeded. It was far less, less life-threatening. She didn't give herself any infections or problems. So it was a success. Good. But contraception had failed her. And, look, that's not surprising because contraception can fail. It can. And, in fact, the World Health Organization reports that even if all contraceptive users used contraception perfectly in every sexual encounter, there would still be at least 6 million unintended pregnancies <laughs> each year. Wow. 6 million. Yep. So... Even the morning after pill is not 100% foolproof. That can be affected by factors like other medications you might take. Yeah. Even herbal supplements like St. John's wort can affect it. Really? Yes. And so can things like where you are in your cycle Mm -hmm. and your weight as well. Yes, absolutely. So none of these things are foolproof. And I'm not trying to sound like I'm advocating for mm. abstinence because I don't I don't no. want to sound like I'm no. going down that path because I'm a fucking realist but what we're right? saying is that there needs to be that plan b there that what happens to. when it fails that's right and, and also here's another statistic for you 50 percent of pregnancies are unwanted pregnancies 50 percent mm-hmm. that doesn't surprise me mm-hmm. it really and again, doesn't I doubt that all of those people who make up that 50% are simply not using contraception. That's right. And contraception is such a fraught thing. Yeah. And also the effects it has on your life. Like you were mentioning before, you know, you try so many different things, things like IUDs, things like implants, like all of these things. There's still, there are ramifications Mm -hmm. for that. There are side effects, you know. You can end up having your period endlessly. For six weeks. Yeah. At once. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, That can happen. That can can happen to your body. (laughs) Says Lauren. Says I. Lauren knowingly. Yeah. (laughs) Precisely. As well as, of course, things like depression, how it can affect your mood. Your libido. Your libido. Like what's the point of being on contraception if you don't want to have sex anymore? So it's a fraught thing in the first place. Now it can do a lot of good. There are a lot of things you can do with that. I mean, again, going back to endometriosis, it's often used Mm. as something that can help to suppress the growth of endometriosis. So it has a lot of different functions. But it's also not surprising that it's not something that all women want to put themselves through. That's right. Because it does a lot of shit to your body. Yeah. So the thing is, is that it's not even like, oh, well, you didn't use contraception. Mm. So, hey you've deserved this or whatever. It's like, no, fuck that method of reasoning because there are so many women who don't even want to be on contraception because of all of these other things. So much other bullshit that goes along with it. Precisely. So birth control has this sort of idea of, you know, in the unlikely event of this not working, you know, they like to position it as mm-hmm. unlikely because, you know, if you're on birth control, I'm not trying to freak you out. Don't suddenly yeah. like panic. And oh, be yeah. Like, it doesn't be happen like, to everybody. Be like, oh, fuck. Yeah. Oh, no. I've been trying so hard, but it's inevitable <laughs> that this doesn't work. But in the unlikely event of an emergency, right, you need a backup. Okay. I mean, you know, you don't get on a plane and they're like, look, in the unlikely event of emergency, 
we haven't packed any life rafts or like yeah. I don't, where is this metaphor going? Yeah. I don't know. But it's kind of this. Well, you, the Titanic didn't have enough lifeboats and everybody died. This is right, right. Moving. you got to have a plan B is yeah. basically it. You've got to plan for another way out. You've got to have a safety mm-hmm. net. And that is this idea, you know, like in the unlikely event of that not working, here's your plan mm. B. Mm. So Pat. You know, at this point in her life, she's been through three abortions now and she is like, this is fucked. This Mm. has to be changed. So she becomes a one-woman campaigner. Basically what she does is she goes down to the corner and starts canvassing people, just hanging around on the street corners, Asking people their opinions on abortion. Huh. Do you think abortion should be made illegal? Why do you think it shouldn't? It should be illegal. And she started writing DIY guides for self-abortions uh-huh. based on her last and most successful experience. Um, yeah. As well as compiling a list of providers where you could go outside the country to get an abortion. If and you these, need it. so these were providers in like Mexico. Yes, that's right, and Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. So over the border. But she also did start to work with doctors in America who mm. on the sly would be willing to help even though, of course, they were risking huge their risk. job yeah. and their practice. So she's basically just – she's got n- no connections, no roots. This is just something she feels compelled that she has to do. Mm-hmm. So this is where this idea of her as being that first activist who just walked out of her door and went, well, fuck <laughs> it, what can I do? This is how I'm going to start. I'm going to start locally. I'm going to start grassroots. I'm just going to start on my just street. Just start talking to people. Just going to start my street mm. corner, start talking to people. And at this time she ran into a woman called Lana Phelan um, who basically just ran into her in the street. Now, Lana has a pretty fucking harrowing abortion story of her mm. own, so harrowing that I actually don't think I'll go into it okay. in this episode. But uh, we will provide links of where a lot mm. of this information came from and if you wanted to read Lana's story for yourself, feel free. But we struggled with the story earlier in this episode, yeah. so I think we'll struggle with this story too. So... Just know Lana had a pretty difficult time because she was married at 14. Oh, fuck off. And she had her abortion when she was 16. Mm. Uh, she'd already had a daughter by the time that she was uh, pregnant at 16. She had been told that another child, after her first child, she had been told that another child would kill her. This is a story that we hear yeah. again and again, isn't it? Exactly. But the doctor didn't bother to tell her how she could not get pregnant. Like, the again... Just Don't, didn't share contraceptive methods Didn't with share her. any knowledge on how you could actually go about avoiding getting pregnant. <laughs> She's a teenager. Yeah. So it's not like she just knows that shit instinctively, right? So as you can imagine, she had some pretty personal reasons mm. for thinking, actually, Pat, I think I'm going to help you with your work. Mm. So she and Pat joined forces. At the same time, they also met another woman called Rowena Gurner. She had a beef with the system as well, right? You can imagine... Again, another woman with an abortion story of her own. She'd been one of thousands of women who at the time were going to Puerto Rico for mm-hmm. abortions. In the early 60s, Puerto Rico was another option for getting an abortion and those who could afford it, could, who could afford to fly there to get one, yeah. would. They flew out on DC-9 aircrafts and it was so common that they started to be called nicknamed the DNC Express. Oh, my God. Now, DNC stands for Dilation and curatage, yeah. as in what happens in an abortion. Yeah. So they were known as the DNC Expresses. Oh, my God. This is how common it was. Because so many women. So many women yeah. doing it. 
so many women. But as you and can, again, we're only talking about a small percentage of the population who can actually could afford to afford do it. to do that. That's too. right, because it was an incredibly expensive exercise, not to mention a terrifying one as well. And Rowena had to get had to lie to get time off work to go and do mm-hmm. it. Then when she arrived, it turned out it was twice what she expected it to be in terms of the cost. Yeah, because it's so easy to exploit women in those positions as well, isn't it? Because they're stuck there. Yep, they and need it. It's not like they can. They can't tell the police that tell anyone. Yeah, that you're exploiting them. Yep. But I think the thing as well to keep in mind here, though, is that for those women who were seeking abortions through medical clinics, what was the most harrowing and traumatising experience was getting there. Mm. The actual procedure itself was clean and safe, usually over in about 10 to 15 minutes, like a fairly simple procedure Mm. it's actually one of the simplest surgical procedures that you can receive right Right. so the trauma around it is the getting of it Mm. is not the actual moment it's how do I find it where do I get it who in my family is going to find out how am I going to afford this that's I mean the back alley abortions stories like Lana's Mm. stories like Pat's that go horribly wrong they happen. They happen, but that's because they're not in that. Yeah, they're not in the regulated clinical environment. Clinical environment yeah. yeah. Right. So Rowena was. She had personal, like obviously they all have personal beef, but she was infuriated yeah. by this. She was absolutely infuriated by this system. And back in America, she joined a group called the Ethical Culture Fellowship because she was looking for ways to get involved with changing the abortion laws. Mm. She wanted things to change. And a woman at this group mentioned Pat to her and asked her if she'd ever heard of this woman, Pat McGuinness. So when she finally went to see Pat, organised to to meet up with her, Pat started showing her letters that women and men had been writing to her and she asked Rowena how she should reply. So Rowena actually sat down and started replying to these letters Mm. for Pat, started to organise her and started to organise what Pat was already doing because Pat had already started to gain some notoriety Mm -hmm. and people were coming to her for this information, writing her letters. Now, these letters, there's actually, it was an exhibition in 2006 by an artist called Andrea Bowers who put together a lot of the letters that she found in Pat's personal collection. And there's a a video installation, you can find it on the internet easily enough, called Letters to an Army of Three because this is what Pat and Lana and Mm -hmm. Rowena started to be known as, the Army of Three. And (laughs) this film, it's an hour-long film. It's basically just actors talking to camera reading these letters from these people, from these families, from, yeah, not just from women but from husbands, boyfriends, and they received thousands of these letters from people who were like, I've heard that you know how I can terminate this pregnancy. Mm. Can you help me? I hear you have a list. Can you please send me the list? And they started to be the go-to people for this information. Their contact details were even listed in Playboy magazine. Whoa. Which I know sounds a bit strange but Playboy was actually very liberal in terms of actually promoting a liberal standpoint on, abo- mm. on abortion mm. and wanting to change um, yeah. abortion that laws. That makes sense. Which makes – it does make yeah. sense, doesn't it? So they re- received so many of these letters and Pat knew that she needed help. She couldn't do this on her own. So Lana and Rowena came in to help her and together they set up the Society for Humane Abortion. 
which is what would come to be known as the Army of Three. So they continued to hand out their information on birth control and abortion. They held symposiums on women's huh. health and they even held self-abortion classes. Wow. Where they taught women the <laughs> safest ways to go about inducing an abortion Jesus. if need be. Well, I guess when you've got nothing else. If that's your last resort, yeah. then that's your last resort. And I guess this comes back to that thing that we were talking about with Margaret Sanger as well, that idea of that knowledge being passed down outside of that medical establishment Mm -hmm. and at the same time that they were doing their work there were other grassroots abortion organizations growing up as well on the other side of the continent there was the jane collective i was just about to ask is this where we get into groups like the jane collective yeah so they were again were a grassroots mobilized organization in chicago and they would put up pamphlets around the place saying things like pregnant don't want to be call jane oh wow this is the kind of it's information. quite upfront. it is quite upfront, and it was headed by a, a woman called heather booth and jane was a really interesting collective because what these women did so this is yeah as i said in chicago on the other side of the country they got to a point where they thought we're referring these women to doctors some of them are butchers some of them Mm. are making a mess of this and exploiting these women and damaging this these women leading to sterilization leading to so many different horrible problems they thought we're not medical doctors but we could probably do a better job of this if we research it properly if we do it if we research it properly and do it ourselves yeah and i'm not like I'm definitely not suggesting people should go out and make their own like self-abortion clinics, Mm. but this is pretty much what they did at the time. And these women learned how to perform safe medical abortions. They would rent out hotel rooms in (laughs) Chicago, moving around from week to week, always in a different place so that the police couldn't follow them. They would let the women know in advance, you know, okay, this is where we're going to be next week. This is Mm. where you'll come. And then they would move again and the women would come to these hotel rooms and the Jane Collective would be the ones to take them through it, to perform the abortions until eventually the police came, shut them down and they were charged. But this was just before Roe versus Wade came in. Yeah. And their lawyer knew this. And by the time that their case was about to come to trial, Roe versus Wade had passed. Had passed. And they were never charged. Wow. So that's a really – like think of the extremes. Yeah. The absolute extremes that these women had to go to to be like, there is no recourse. What can we do? We have to do it ourselves. We have yeah. to mobilise, make yeah. our own mobile clinics. Yeah. In Keep... a room with a bunch of other women who are not medically trained. That's right. But are still probably providing you with a, a safer, more accessible, and let's be honest, probably way better for your mental health experience. Much, yeah. And this is this that is a key one as well. Is nurturing that... space of women. And so, so many of the testimonies, the oral testimonies of women who did resort to using Jane was just that sense that they weren't being judged. Mm. Because, yes, you could possibly find a doctor who would be willing to perform one for you or you could find a clinic that might take you in. But the sense of shame that would be put upon you, the sense of you've done something wrong, 
that was precisely what collectives like Jane, precisely what collectives like the Army of Three wanted to change was Mm. you've done nothing wrong. This is just simply what happens Mm. and sometimes there's nothing else you can do. And this is what I mean about changing that stigma, changing that kind of notion that it's got to be this, which at the time it did have to be this secretive underground, basically an underground railroad of abortions. Changing that whole rhetoric to being something that's out in the open, being something that is safe and accessible. Mm. It was safe and accessible, but it was only really safe and accessible to middle class white. To the few, if we're being honest. Like, and that's one of the problems I think that I think some people have kind of criticized these groups like the Jane Collective Mm. for is that they didn't have that reach into black communities. And because, well, I guess feminism more generally in this period of time was a very white middle class yeah because we're still looking at that sort feminism. of second wave yeah. feminism before intersectionality yeah. was even a term yeah um, exactly yeah and black women lacked often the financial resources and those social connections That's like right. those networks those secret underground networks they lacked those to abortion providers and the stigma that you were talking about often played a heavier role mm. in a lot of mm. black communities as well. I actually have a story about the Jane Collective and a, there was a young black woman named Lois who started working with the Jane Collective and she called them out on their kind of – it's not like it was a purposeful exclusivity but she knew that they weren't speaking to black women the way that they needed to. So Lois said that they weren't speaking to black women because, and this is a quote, we were trying to one, deal with being black women, two, deal with prejudice, three, deal with the structure, being single parents and staying alive. That was our struggle. Mm. And so she started counselling black women for the Jane Collective and she acted as that woman who was able to bridge that gap and start to bring more black women in, let those networks open to them a little bit more. And that led to more women of colour-led organisations who started to operate, including Our Own Voice, the National Black Women's Reproductive Justice Agenda, the National Asian Pacific American Women's Forum, the National Latina Institute for Reproductive Health, and the African American Women Evolving Collective. So I think it's important to acknowledge that as a part of this as well. Definitely. And also I think that there's a huge part of this discussion now as well that also isn't getting much airtime. And that's also that it's just not cisgender women, right? Yeah. Who oh, yeah. or cisgender women or girls who might need these services. So mm. there are trans men and boys and plenty of non-binary folk who actually need to be accounted for in this. Mm-hmm. And Amnesty International quotes from a survey of over 6,000 gender non-conforming Americans. 28% of transgender and gender non-conforming individuals said they had postponed seeking medical care because they feared discrimination. Yeah. And 19% reported actually being refused medical <gasps> care because of their transgender status, right? Refused. So there's still discrimination yeah, now, right? Yeah, when we right? think that we've made progress. 
when we do, we make progress in little ways, don't mm. we? Like there's always this sort of sense of like moving a little bit forward to just mm. move a little bit backwards, mm. right? You know, there's this sense of like, okay, hang on, we'll get this right first for like white, middle class, cis women, mm. and then we'll pick you guys up. Then we'll come yeah. back for you, right? But this is, is precisely the problem, isn't it? Is that it has to be this all-inclusive, that those boundaries have to mm-hmm. expand in the first place. And this is actually, and a lot of the women who were working at this time, as we said, were white middle-class women and it was to do with all of those issues of those barriers, those structural barriers, but also just because women of colour were carrying so much other bullshit Mm. that they had to deal with. And this continues to be an issue today. And there still is that divide in the sense that, like, it's often white women who are at the forefront of dealing with abortion issues because women of colour have to deal with so much other shit at the same time. And there's also the problem of, well, I guess abortion, particularly back in the 60s, was seen by groups like the Black Panthers and Mm -hmm. um, the Nation of Islam as being a matter of black genocide. That's right, yeah. And it's not really difficult to understand why Mm -hmm. that would be the belief when you have such a strong history of forced sterilization and population control. And so organizations like the Black Panthers argued that white government family planners posed a threat to the black population by offering them birth control without other healthcare measures. So basically birth control by itself was harmful without adequate solutions to broader healthcare problems Mm -hmm. that related to poverty. And we also see this, I guess, an example is the lack of minority representation in Planned Parenthood, you know? So that's like, yeah, that's a problem. Mm. But then in the 70s, more black feminists became involved in the movement and started to take up that mantle of... But also that touching on that issue of sterilisation, which is one that we're not going to go into in too much mm. depth today because I, I think there are other episodes in the future that I think lead us into that conversation in a much more nuanced kind mm. of way. We, we need to give that conversation the space that it has. But in some places you actually had to agree to sterilization to get an abortion. Yeah. So that was the net result of having an abortion was then actually being sterilized mm. as well. So, I mean, this is an incredibly dark, dark history. Yeah. And where we are now, I think, I know we, we talked about this a little bit last week as well, is we do take for granted all of what came before Mm. that got us to where we are and who wants to go back to that, you know? Mm. Who wants to go back to this point in history? And it's actually even a reality. It's still a reality for Mm. some people Mm -hmm. across the globe. Yeah, yeah, where it remains illegal and inaccessible. And even in countries where it has been decriminalised or is legalised, it still remains hugely inaccessible. There's actually a really fantastic map from the Centre for Reproductive Rights that I suggest anyone who's interested has a look at. And if you're listening to this episode, then you're probably Mm. interested. And it has an interactive map that actually shows you the breakdown of countries Mm. and the laws across the world regarding abortion. And sort of the the first category, which is prohibited altogether for any reason whatsoever, so where abortion is not permitted even to save a woman's life, even if her, you know, her life is at risk or if she has been raped or mm. abused, 
26 countries globally fall within that category. Wow. That accounts for 90 million or 5% of women of reproductive age who live in those countries, yeah. right? That's a huge amount of women to have mm. left behind, isn't it? That's just, yeah. it's actually like, yeah, okay, we're doing that thing where yeah. we're tearing up again. <laughs> but so the next category up is category two where countries allow abortion if it's to save a woman's life, if her life is at risk, and 39 countries fall mm. into that category. That's 359 million women wow. or 22% of women. And I think a lot of people would be surprised at the laws in countries that are well like western and we think of as being more progressive like in australia for example it's technically only legal different states have different laws we don't have a federal law like the u.s but in queensland and new south wales it is illegal except in a situation where a doctor determines that a mother's life her physical or mental health is at risk Mm. in south australia it's legal only if a doctor decides that a woman's mental or physical health two. is at risk. Two, two doctors. doctors. Two doctors And look, this it. becomes a little bit of – these days it's a little bit of a loophole. Yeah. You know, it's like it's not inaccessible. You just need to jump through those hoops. But it's still – that law of technically it is illegal in mm-hmm. states in Australia. Yeah, and that's what keeps that stigma on it. That's what keeps it – from being this terrifying concept. Mm. And studies have shown that, and I think that this is part of it as well, right, is this fear-mongering around it. And there's this idea that it's going to ruin your life, that it's terrible, that mm. your mental health will be will be destroyed forever and you're going to live in regret yep. and shame and guilt. And it's not and it, true. And studies have shown yep. that the majority of women feel relief. Mm-hmm. The key emotion mm-hmm. is relief yep and uh, there was one particular study done over five years out of the university of california that followed nearly a thousand women who had been either denied an abortion or who had received one and it showed that comparatively their emotional distress and trauma evened out over six months to where they were pretty much on equal terms Mm. like women kind of get on with their lives yeah They're not suffering from guilt and remorse and regret and trauma from having an abortion. And this, I think, is such an incredibly important part of the conversation, right, is that it's positioned as this thing that's – this rhetoric is that it's this thing that's so incredibly harmful, Mm -hmm. not just physically, because if you do it correctly, if it's medically sanctioned and approved, then it's it's not physically Mm -hmm. harmful. As I said before, it's actually one of the the simplest – surgical procedures you can and, receive. And now we have other options as well, such as RU486, which is the drug. So you can actually take that home and administer yeah. and take that pill yourself. You can't take it home everywhere. In uh, some places you have to administer the pill in, in the actual clinic. In the clinic. But yeah. in some places you can take it home and do it in the comfort of your own home. Yeah. So there's this rhetoric that it's this incredibly traumatising experience, but there's actually no data to prove that that's yeah. the case. There's no data to prove that that's the case. (laughs) You can understand people would have PTSD if they've had to have a back alley botched abortion. Mm -hmm. Exactly. That makes fucking sense, right? That's a totally different thing. That's a totally different thing. And that's what we're putting women back into the situation where more and more they're having to seek these things out. Again, we're going... And it just drives me nuts because (laughs) we don't talk about it freely enough. 
And there's reasons why we don't talk about it freely enough because, I mean, those, those women who've had terminations, you don't talk about it because it's a personal mm. thing, right? And also because you don't want to spend your life justifying your personal mm. decisions to a bunch of fucking strangers, yep. right? This is why people don't just drop it lightly in conversation. Yep. It's not because they're carrying around a burden of guilt or shame. It's because they're carrying around, well, why would I waste my time justifying mm. myself to you, right? So that's what's actually damaging. That's what's more damaging than the act itself. And I think it drives me nuts that we have this concept that silence and you know, this comes back to this conversation that we've had before around our episode on Tarana Burke, our conversations around this, that somehow silence equals guilt, mm. you know, mm. or s- silence equals shame, shame remorse, yep. regret. Yep. And this drives me fucking nuts because sometimes silence simply means I don't want to talk about I don't it. Talk about it. Yep. That's what it means. Yeah, and because so much of that is knowing how much bullshit you have to deal with from other people. Precisely. Yeah. And the flip side of that then is that we tiptoe around these issues and we make it seem terrifying and bad. And this is part and parcel of that rhetoric that has come into the the American system is this idea around abortion as this morally degrading it has zero to do with logic like Mm -hmm. I can't even I actually I actually can't even formulate well I feel like a lot of the arguments of the pro-life movement aren't hugely developed around logic (laughs) not because of course because yes while they advocate so much for the life of this child as soon as it's born into the world they don't give a fuck anymore (laughs) Who's supporting those women who can't economically afford to have a child? Who is seeing that child through with their education? Who's making sure that that woman is employed? Who's taking care of the hospital bills that she is forced to endure when she doesn't have insurance in a country like America mm-hmm. and is forced to cough up thousands and thousands of dollars in healthcare to have that child? Mm-hmm. And then the hundreds of thousands of dollars that that child will cost throughout his or her life. They don't give a fuck anymore. And this brings me back to Pat as (laughs) well. We should get back to Pat. Because we should get back to Pat. But I think this was a very important Mm. rant to have. It's not even a rant, actually. It was actually quite, I think, a nuanced and logical discussion. (laughs) But this brings me back to a point that Pat made because they actually put together, by 1969, they put together and published a book called The Abortion Handbook for Responsible Women pretty good title in which <laughs> responsible responsible women. Women, yeah. in which they insisted quite fucking rightly that letting men make decisions about women's rights was like letting dogs make decisions about laws affecting cats <laughs> i fucking <laughs> love that that's great i fucking love that that's great because when you put it like that you're it, like oh Oh, yeah, you yeah. are. You know what? That makes no sense. <laughs> oh, yeah, that makes no fucking sense. Oh, wait, you don't have a uterus. Wait a minute. You don't fucking understand it. We oh. should say cis men don't have yeah. a uterus. And, yeah, that's right. We should. And of course, we're not man bashing. <laughs> we're not man bashing. <laughs> but I think that this, obviously, when we look at what's happened in America, when we look at the men mm-hmm. driving, this backward yep. backward momentum, this is where 
that kind of rhetoric, making it as plain and simple as that, you realise the ridiculous mm. nature of where we're at and in 2019. So, look, even just last week, Margaret Atwood at New York City's BookCon, because at the moment there's a bill currently before the Texan Senator Greg Abbott and this bill would require abortion providers to cremate or bury fetal remains and it would ban the most common second trimester abortion, which is usually only provided to women whose lives are at risk. Mm-hmm. Generally, second and third term abortions are of dilation and evacuation would ban that, Mm. right? So Margaret Atwood argued that when states obligate women into childbearing, they institute a form of slavery. And she said that she's waiting for lawsuits from families of women who have died or from women who have been forced to have children that they can't afford. Mm. Because as like in Texas since 2011, when they started withdrawing funding from these clinics, there have been spikes among mortality and birth rates among women who rely on government funds for medical care. Essentially, those who are most at risk mm. are, of course, the ones who suffer most from this. And it is men without uteruses who are usually in economically privileged positions who are the ones legislating this shit. Yeah. And maybe there should be a class action. action? Maybe there should be a lawsuit. class action. Yeah, that seems that seems like a good Get idea. Get on it, Texas. I like it. I hope you're listening out there in Texas. <laughs> but by the time that this handbook was published, the Army of Three estimated that they'd referred more than 12,000 women over the border for abortions. And by July 1966, Pat decided that she was going to try and break a law by testing it. So this is how we know you get things done, right? (laughs) There are stupid fucking laws and until you break it, until you're willing to get arrested to test it out, they won't get changed. Like, for example, you can't wear a suit of armour into Westminster, just so you know. Somebody tried that out. Somebody tried that recently. Yeah, good. Excellent. How did that turn out? They they were fine. They didn't didn't get arrested. Uh, Cool. Did they change the law? I don't think anyone really cares enough okay. about it. Nobody cares. So there, quite obviously there was a law against what Pat was doing, right, mm-hmm. all this time. Section 601 of the California Business and Professions Code made it illegal to distribute information about abortion, which she had been doing for ages. But the police knew she wanted to test this law, right? Mm-hmm. They knew that she wanted to get arrested. So nobody had arrested her to this point. Right. Well, that, because they were like, mm, that's what she wants. She wants that. That's what she wants. So we're not going to so do it. So we're just it. not going to do it. Wow. That's a good way of getting around. Getting arrested. Laws. <laughs> it is. So July 1966, she let the press and the police know in advance that she was going to be outside the San Francisco Federal Building mm. handing out leaflets on the topic of abortion. And she had two leaflets with her, one that explained, well, she said that, you know, the point of this leaflet was to explain alternatives to knitting needles, coat hangers and household cleaning agents. Mm. Household cleaning agents. Yeah. Yeah. And so she was on the steps handing out her information and it was quite peaceful. There's actually an article in the Berkeley Barb, which was a counterculture underground newspaper at the time, which explains it, which I'll put up on Instagram, I think, rather than going into details about now. Mm-hmm. And basically it was pretty calm. People came up, took her information, asked her a few questions. One old guy came up and asked if he could take some information for his secretary, Oh, which is a bit... Oh, Yeah. Mm. A bit gross. Ooh, that is yeah. gross. Yeah, a bit uh, gross. At least he's uh, no. taking care of her. Uh, who can say? 
But she kept doing this and the police kept standing around refusing to arrest her. So eventually... What a, a weird standoff. It's such a weird standoff. So eventually a reporter had been speaking to her for 10 minutes and he walked up to her and he said, I am placing you under citizen's arest uh-huh. for breaking this law. Because he knew that that's what she wanted. That's and he right. he was helping her yeah. out. Yeah, he's like, that's it. I'll just place you under citizen's arrest. So the police were like, oh, they had to do it. fuck. <laughs> fuck you. <laughs> uh, so reluctantly they arrested her. They were like, we don't, we don't want to be doing this. But from this, she got her day in court and the case was thrown, thrown out and the law was abolished. Wow. The law on distributing information about abortions was abolished. So this was a victory, that's right? A, that's such a really interesting way of going about getting that law thrown out, isn't it? But, I mean, Margaret Sanger did a similar sort of thing as well with, with, the, the, Comst- with the Comstock Act, you know. Yeah. It's provoking it. It's provoking you yeah. in order to actually test this fucking law. Put me in court. We'll test it. Mm. And then mm. the precedence of this case is going to throw this out the window, yeah. right? And this is, again, also what happened with Roe versus Wade, mm-hmm. which is what changed the abortion laws entirely in America. So she went back to distributing her info, this time legally, and she continued to carry out her work with the Society for Humane Abortion, which eventually became the Association to Repeal Abortion Laws. And this eventually also morphed into the National Abortion Rights Action League, which still exists today. So... In 1961, Los Angeles County Hospital admitted over 3,500 patients treated for illegal abortions. As of 1967, almost 80% of the women who died as a consequence of botched abortions were non-white. So this comes back to that conversation that we were having, Mm. right? Those stats really show the absolute need now for not just that rhetoric to change but for those laws to change. Yeah. It would take almost another 10 years before Roe versus Wade finally changed those laws across America. And the Society for Humane Abortion finally was able to disband in 1975, two years after Roe versus Wade changed that law. And Pat went on to carry on her work. She's still carrying on her work, as I said, right yeah. at the age of 91, 91 now. She gets out and speaks and spreads the message whenever she can. There's an impressive video of her speaking just last year at a rally, looking pretty good for 90, I have to say. She also drew political cartoons, um, oh. as you can imagine, with a focus on women's reproductive rights. And wow. she said that the reason she drew those cartoons was so that she had something to channel her anger into <laughs> when she couldn't channel her anger anywhere else. Wow. So in 2018, just last year, she was chosen by the National Women's History Project as one of its honorees for Women's History Month in the United States. And I think that at the moment she is one of those actual heroes, like genuinely a hero yeah. that needs to be honoured. We should have her face on our we should have. We should probably make a T-shirt with her face on it. Yeah. We'll get in contact with her and see how she feels about (laughs) that. But I think, you know, what makes this such a a timely sort of story as well, and I know we keep harping on about how we feel like we're going in circles, but there's a great article on Slate by Lily Loofborough who states that, you know, a social history of American abortion shows two things. One, that it's always been around, and Mm. two, that anti-choice efforts tend to intensify in response to women's perceived liberation, right? Yeah. So think about when Pat was doing her work. It was when women had joined the workforce. 
the in unprecedented of numbers. Second wave feminism. It was the 1950s were sort of engaged in that time of trying to put, as Luf Barras terms it, put the genie back in the bottle, right? Mm. Put women back mm-hmm. in their place. Mm-hmm. They've tasted liberation, put them back in their place. So how do we do that? We restrict the laws around their bodily autonomy, right? Yep. And where are we now? We're in this place where women have become too loud. Mm-hmm. We've become too passionate. We've become too noisy. We've become too aggressive. Too active. We're too active. We're not going to fucking. Too self-determining. Too self- we're not going to fucking put up with it anymore. So how do you shut us up? You go back to mm-hmm. attacking those laws around yeah, bodily auto- because autonomy. Because as we said last week. The number one way to oppress women economically and politically is to entrap them within motherhood and take away their ability to engage in the world as active, independent, financially independent, particularly citizens. On that note, though, of course... To all you mothers out there who are financially yeah. independent, active. That's not to say it that's can't not be done. Say it can't be of, done. Of course, and of it's course, not to say that's it can't right. Be done. I'm but talking it, about this cycle of. But what it is to say it is over and over, and women yeah. living in the in perpetual motherhood yeah. is what I'm referring to. And also, what it does mean to say is that that needs to be done on your own terms. Yes, you need to be the one that makes the choices about what you do and how you do mm-hmm. it. And perhaps I think a story that is a story of hope. It's an uplifting story mm. around an issue that gets us down yeah. with good reasons. It does. it does. I just want to mention another couple of women who were really instrumental. And, look, hopefully we'll get to do some full episodes about a couple of these. I know you really want to do an episode on Angela Davis. Oh. Um, but I just wanted to mention her. Do you her. think we could talk to Angela Davis? Oh, do you we think can try. talk to us? Let's Send Let's her an email. Just fucking give it a burl, hey. And she's published a lot on black women's reproductive rights. If anyone wants to know more about the history of from a perspective of women of colour, same with Elaine Brown. She was the first woman chair of the Black Panther Party from 1974 to 1976. She's a fascinating individual, isn't yeah. <laughs> And she kind of changed a lot of their policies and introduced this platform for black women's reproductive rights in the party. Because the Black Panthers were a very patriarchal mm. construct and, and she was the first person to get women more involved she did. in the actual running She of it. put a yeah. lot of women in leadership positions within the party and she started to educate women about reproductive rights, about legal abortion in black communities, really emphasising the importance of healthcare. For women. And another one that I want to just quickly touch on is Billy Avery. Billy Avery was a little bit like Pat in that she worked initially in this student organization in Florida that disseminated information about abortion clinics, mm. um, especially also to women of color. And in 1973, she, along with three other women, opened the Gainesville Women's Health Center because there was a real lack of reproductive health care and abortion services in Florida. So a lot of these abortion clinics that they had been telling women about were all in New York. Mm. And obviously New York is far away from Florida. A very long way. Yeah. And so the center opened and they also worked a lot with women of color and they had a publication called Sage Femme, a newsletter that aimed to educate women about their health and what quality healthcare should look like. Yeah, what it should look like. Yes. What it doesn't necessarily look like, but what it should yep. fucking look like. So those are just a couple of women that I wanted to touch on that if anyone would like to find out more about, because obviously this is just one story of so many potential stories that we could have told to kind of discuss 
you know, reproductive health and abortion access. So if anyone wants to investigate those further, please, I recommend that you read, particularly go read Angela Davis's work and hopefully we'll have some episodes about them soon. There'll be lots more episodes. Yep. Yes. Uh, because as you know, here at DVM Women, the list is endless. <laughs> it keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So fucking yeah. endless. But that's a good thing. Which means... Uh, We'll be sticking around for a lot longer. There's I hope so. A lot more of this to come. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> and hopefully you'll stick around with us. Yeah. We can only hope. Yeah. But next week we're <gasps> going somewhere really exciting. But next week. Because firstly, happy Pride, everybody. Yes, um, it's, it's June. It's June. Happy Pride. And next week I want to take us to Stonewall. Yes. Where Pride began. It's 50 years. It is the 50th anniversary 50 of Stonewall. Years. So I would love to tell a Stonewall story next week. I think we've managed to get our timing pretty good this month. Yeah. Yeah. Pat's birthday, Stonewall <laughs> anniversary. Good job. Yeah. Us. So <laughs> Pat's on backs. Stick around with us next week as we head there. And enjoy the rest of your Pride Month, everybody. And in the meantime, of course, you can catch up on all of our previous episodes on your podcasting app of choice. And leave us a review and make sure you subscribe and tell all your friends. You can also support us on Patreon from as little as $2 a month. We have bonus episodes. You can get a t-shirt or a sticker. We also have a brand new Patreon exclusive episode that has just come out. That's right. That's a fun one as well. So <laughs> get on board with that. And if you'd like to buy any merchandise, of course, you can find us on Etsy. And we are on all the social medias. We are at Deviant Women. And so until next time, keep fighting the good fight. Yeah. Everyone out there, look after yourselves. That's right. And we will be back with you in a fortnight. We'll see you then. Bye. Bye.